It is notoriously difficult to summarize Marcel Proust's long novel, In Search of Lost Time. The book is six volumes and over a million words long, with dozens of major characters and as many more lesser figures. Even an overview of the various plot lines would fill a slim volume. But one can safely say that the book provides a rich portrait of French society between the 1890s and the 1920s. And one can also say that the book, like Paris during its heyday, is saturated with music. Proust's high society characters love nothing more than a good chat at a swish party, and much of the talk is about music. In fact, from this book, you can compile a very comprehensive catalogue of the musicians who lived in Paris at that time. Everyone, and I mean everyone, is discussed. Gabriel Fauré, César Franck, Camille Sanson are all subject to scrutiny. Claude Debussy is heralded as the French antidote to Wagnerian opera. And Igor Stravinsky is noted as the exotic newcomer. The list goes on and on, with even lesser figures like Vincent Dandy and Charles Vidor getting their moment on the stage. There is, however, one notable exception to this list. He was Proust's exact contemporary. He rose from humble beginnings as a cabaret pianist to gain international renown as an avant-garde composer. He knew many of Proust's friends, and Proust himself even attended this composer's performances. So why did Marcel Proust actually remove Eric Satie from his long and musical novel? Was this a simple omission? Or a musical snub? or perhaps something in between. In this program, I want to explore the parallel musical lives of these two Parisian geniuses and to suggest an answer to what has become, for me at least, an intriguing literary and musical question. Marcel Proust enjoyed a comfortable middle-class upbringing. His father was a well-respected medical doctor. But his mother was German and Jewish, which left Proust always subject to questions about his allegiance to France and French culture. Furthermore, Marcel Proust was homosexual at a time when homosexuality, though tolerated in many circles, was still illegal. But despite these social handicaps, Proust's conversational skills, his broad knowledge of French culture, and his sheer charm rendered him a sure-footed social climber. Even before he'd published anything, he got himself invited to some of the best parties in town. And these parties, or salons, were regular and glittering affairs orchestrated by women of the upper classes. The best ones had literally hundreds of guests, bringing together politicians, aristocrats, business leaders, and, of course, artists. 
Often the centerpiece of a good salon was a concert of new music performed by the composer. Thus the salons provided ready-made and highly influential audiences for composers, at least for those composers who cultivated the right social connections. It was through the salons that Marcel Proust met and came to admire the work of Gabriel Faure. This relationship lasted most of Proust's life. On at least one occasion, Proust hired Faure to perform at a dinner party he was hosting. Though as it happens, Faure had to decline at the last minute. On another occasion, Proust dragged himself from his sickbed just to hear a concert of Faure's music. As early as 1897, Proust wrote a letter to Faure declaring, I know your work sufficiently well to write a 300-page book about it. Knowing Proust's propensity to write long books, this claim probably isn't an exaggeration. Proust could have heard Faure perform this barcarolle at a salon in the mid-1890s. While Marcel Proust was swanning around the salons and luxuriating in the music of Gabriel Faure, Eric Satie was living just up the hill from the center of Paris in an up-and-coming neighborhood called Montmartre. Well, it was certainly a very attractive place for artists of all kinds. I mean. David Mooney, 
head of keyboard studies at the Dublin Institute of Technology's Conservatory of Music. What we have to remember is that Montmartre at this time was considered to be a suburb of Paris. It wasn't necessarily part of Paris as it is today. So uh, it happened to have quite relaxed licensing laws. So this, of course, was hugely attractive to many artistic types. And it produced a bohemian type of culture, which was, again, obviously attractive to many musicians. And the cabaret scene and the cafe scene really flourished at this time. So it, I mean, a lot of the major composers that we know, apart from Satie, his contemporaries such as Faure, Debussy, Ravel, they all frequented Montmartre, which was the place to go. It was a place for cross-fertilization of the arts. They, they drank coffee with um, painters, sculptors, poets and we've had such wonderful collaborations coming out of, of Montmartre. You know, it had this attractiveness to the, to the artists. Call it countercultural or bohemian or post-impressionistic or fin de siècle, Montmartre of that time was a vibrant coming together of artists and prostitutes and alcohol and absinthe and rebellious creativity. So, although Eric Satie had studied piano at the Paris Conservatoire, his real education began at the Café Chat Noir, where he vamped for shadow plays and cabaret singers. He dressed the part of an eccentric. There's a rather fun portrait of him as a young man, seated at the piano in an antique top hat and frock coat, with scraggly long hair and smoking a very Parisian cigarette. By the turn of the century, he had revised his image by purchasing seven identical velvet chestnut-colored suits and try saying that after a few glasses of Bordeaux. As a composer, Eric Satie demonstrated an early, enduring and distinctive style, producing those short but not so simple piano pieces that represent the majority of his musical output. Satie's works can sound innocuous enough to today's ears. We've all heard them in advertisements or played in hotel foyers. But listen a little closer and you'll begin to hear how transgressive they were and indeed still are. Unlike those of his romantic forebears, Satie's melodies don't progress. Time moves, but not necessarily forward. there are those bizarre and unpronounceable names like gymnopedie, 
which supposedly was an ancient Greek ritualistic dance performed in the nude, or nosien, an evocative word that Sati coined all by himself. Here's David Mooney again. I think from the visual viewpoint, there's no question that the addition of text into the score, you know, it, that is one of the ha true hallmarks of Satie's style. And it is the first thing that a student will notice on opening a Satie score, or, you know, anybody who knows anything about music will wonder, what is this text? Is it, they're not words, it's not lyrics. And it's a most interesting thing because nobody really knows why he did it. The, the, the actual text doesn't always match the music. Except with perhaps, well, there's the. I mean, for example, here we have this Danse Maigre, which is, you know, a thin dance. Again, the, the, the title itself quite sort of ridiculous, almost prefiguring a bit of surrealism or something. Um, but he says here, de loin et avec Henri, so it's from far away and with boredom. So again, the, the idea of a dance. But it's a thin dance, so we don't know what that means, being from far away. He also has uh, here, without um, letting your finger get red. Um, the next direction is from, from outside, isn't it? It's asking a question. And then the next one is on uh, yellow, it's on yellow velvet. So uh, it's quite clear, you know, that the stream of consciousness is quite crazy, really. The next one, without, without any noise, just believe me again, he says. And the next one is dry like a cuckoo. Here we do have a falling third in the bottom part of the piano, which is staccato. So that could be a replication of a cuckoo, but it's way, way down in the, in the register. So it's not going to sound like a very healthy cuckoo. But what did it all sound like? Here is one of Satie's early works, his pièce froide number two, which for me conveys the puzzling innocence of so many of his compositions. Despite the fact that Satie always managed to gather some musical followers, there were times in his life when he almost seemed bent on career suicide. He embarked on public rows with some rather important people, and usually lost. And then in the mid-1890s, he involved himself with a strange religious guru called Josephine Paladin, who founded an ultra-Catholic sect called the Rosicrucians. Satie composed music to accompany some of Peladan's bizarre religious dramas, 
And afterwards, it took Sati a while to dissociate himself from this unusual character in the eyes of the Parisian public. Here's one of the pieces Sati wrote for Paladin's Les Fils des Etoiles, or Children of the Stars. This music seems to be situated a very great distance from the new compositions Gabriel Faure was performing, perhaps at the exact same moment, perhaps less than one mile away. I said a moment ago that Sati did have some early supporters, but also, indeed, some notable detractors. In 1896, a certain 25-year-old named Marcel Proust published his first book, a collection of short fiction, social criticism and poetry, entitled Pleasures and Days. One satirical piece in the collection presents a conversation between two bourgeois characters speaking of their favorite serious music. One of them summarizes Eric Satie as follows. Gounod makes me laugh, and Verdi makes me cry. But of course Verdi just isn't as good as Eric Satie. Everyone says so. It's doubtful that Satie ever learned of this reference, as practically no one bought this book. However, when Proust suggests here that Eric Satie was overvalued by his few pretentious followers, one suspects that this view was probably widely held. Sati himself was not above overvaluing his contribution to the arts. 
In the 1890s, he applied for membership of the esteemed Académie des Beaux-Arts three times, and he was soundly rejected on each occasion. One music professor of the time argued against Satie's membership, saying Satie was... A complete lunatic! He has never done anything! Unfortunately, Eric Satie was not immune to the criticism that dogged his creative life, and the continuing poverty got to him too. When rents in Montmartre began to climb, he moved five miles south to the neighborhood of Arcueil. He still worked as a pianist in Montmartre, though, and regularly had to walk the entire distance home in the middle of the night. Ground down by lack of recognition and of money, Satie's letters at the turn of the century make for pretty dismal reading. I haven't eaten for two days. All this is no fun. I'm getting completely fed up with it. An empty stomach, a parched throat, give me no pleasure whatsoever. I'm dying of boredom. Everything I begin timidly fails with a certainty I've never known before now. In fact, Eric Satie might have faded off the musical planet entirely if it wasn't for his close friendship with Claude Debussy, who was, by the way, one of Marcel Proust's favorite composers. In 1897, Debussy performed his own orchestral versions of the Gymnopédie, and it was through Debussy's orchestrations that most Parisians first encountered Satie's most famous tunes. Compared with the piano originals, I find these orchestrations really quite dull. Though the Parisians of the day lapped this stuff up, I far prefer the lilting calm of the original. Here's David Booney again. The problem when you orchestrate something, you're trying to color it more than it already is. And you're always trying to find ways of replicating not the piano sound, but what you think the composer's intention would have been with larger, you know, larger resources. And to me, the, the gymnopédie and the nausienne in particular are very intimate. They're sort of salon music and they just don't work because they were never meant to do that. And I wonder if Satie really wanted Debussy to orchestrate the Gymnopédie. It was probably a huge honour for him. And in fact, it was a huge honour. He was very grateful to Debussy for doing that because it brought him some extra fame. But, um, and yes, who wouldn't want Debussy to orchestrate your works? It would be hard to refuse. But uh, in general, I think this is simple music with simple means and probably doesn't translate the best. David, what is so special about the gymnopédie? Well, I think people like the sound of them because, you know, seventh, ninth chords are very comforting. There's something very warm about those harmonies. Certainly, um, the way they were used was a little unusual and both Debussy and Satie um, used the seventh and ninth and up upper dominant chords in, um, in similar motion. In other words, they were moving in the same direction, which is a little unusual. So, for example, if I demonstrate, here's a, a triad, and if we add a seventh and a ninth, and you can keep going all the way up, thirteenth, 
they create a very rich sound. So for example, if I take, if I play the, this particular progression, there are seventh chords. Just same chord played twice, but in fact, if you separate it out, you get the opening of the gymnopédie, the first gymnopédie. I think um, the gentle rhythm of the gymnopédie and the beautiful singing cantabile line all adds to a sort of quasi-romantic aesthetic, but of course it wasn't meant to be that at all. They really are sort of gentle waltzes in many ways. But what I think is most interesting about the three of them as a set is the fact that they were often considered to be three views of the one object, so that this, these three pieces were like looking at a piece of sculpture from three different angles. And we don't often get that in music, where we consider a piece of music as a three-dimensional object.
So, to assess our two artists for a moment, by 1905, Eric Satie had gained some notoriety by means of a few interesting piano studies, some popular cabaret tunes, and Debussy's able assistance. Meanwhile, Marcel Proust had published a collection of short pieces, a number of journal articles, and, interestingly, his translations of two works by the English socialist and art critic John Ruskin. By this time, Satie and Proust were both in their mid to late thirties, and, though one shouldn't be overjudgmental, frankly, neither had quite made their mark on the world. But thankfully, that year 1905 was something of a turning point for both men. For Proust, the change was brought about by his mother's painful illness and death. Jeanne Proust was by all accounts an engaging woman with a wonderful sense of humor, better English than her son, and enough courage to ignore her husband's bourgeois philandering. When she died, Marcel suffered a severe and lengthy emotional breakdown. But his mother's death ultimately inspired him to begin his major life's work. He wrote to a friend at the time, It would be so sweetly pleasing to me to write something before I die that would have pleased Maman. Late in 1906, Proust moved from the family home into a suite of rooms on the first floor of number 102 Boulevard Haussmann. He would, famously, soundproof the walls with cork lining. It is, after all, a busy street, and his bedroom fronted the building. From that time onwards until his death in 1922, the majority of his waking hours were spent in that same bedroom writing that long, incomparable novel, In Search of Lost Time. 1905 was also a year of significant change for the 39-year-old Eric Satie. He took a brave step for a professional musician, returning to college to study, of all things, composition, with a focus on that most fundamental of musical subjects, counterpoint. Debussy feared that academic training would sap Satie's compositions of their sense of spontaneity. However, those years at the Schola Cantorum helped Satie write notably more complex and secure compositions and eventually create full orchestrated scores. And our Eric Satie would certainly never lose his sense of play and Montmartre rebelliousness. If anything, the names of his tunes become even more ironic, with titles like Bureaucratic Sonatina and Dried Embryos. Here is what Satie sounded like soon after leaving the Schola Cantorum. Listen out for the new feeling of counterpoint lines wedded to Satiesque irony in these three short pieces entitled Flabby Preludes for a Dog.
In the lead-up to the First World War, Proust's health deteriorated and his social life contracted to a fraction of what it was. Furthermore, his personal habits became more, shall we say, satiesque. He was always cold and never seemed to remove his furry overcoat, even when in company and comfortably indoors. He had difficulty sleeping, and his bills for prescription narcotics were staggering. Over time, his diet would contract to little more than asparagus, coffee, and ice cream. But despite his reclusive and nocturnal habits, he continued to satisfy his cravings for live music. He had a special telephone called a theatrophone installed in his flat, so he could tune into live performances at the Paris Opera. In 1912, using this new contraption, Proust listened to Debussy's opera Palliasse et Mélisande five nights in a row. Then there's that story about Proust having a musical urge and leaving his apartment at 11 o'clock at night. He arrived, quite uninvited, to the house of Gaston Poulet, who was the leader of a well-known string quartet. Proust convinced the poor man to gather the members of the quartet from the various parts of the city and transport them by taxi to Proust's place for an impromptu performance. And they did gather, and they did play for several hours. Proust, always generous, paid the musicians well enough for them to return for several more midnight concerts. Let's talk about the book for a moment. In 1913, after receiving a number of rather nasty rejection letters from some very stupid publishers, Proust finally saw the first volume of In Search of Lost Time go to print. Not surprisingly, given its author's passions and past life, the book was saturated with music. When completed, the six-volume work ultimately included references to over 40 composers and numerous performers, both living and dead. Everyone from Bach and Handel to César Franck, Maurice Ravel, Emmanuel Chabrier, and, of course, his beloved Claude Debussy. Proust's characters often judge one another by their tastes in music. At one point, the young narrator is introduced to wealthy old Madame de Cambremay, and he wins her approval handily. What? You like Chopin? she exclaimed. He likes Chopin! He likes Chopin! My knowledge of Chopin threw her into a sort of artistic delirium. Her bosom swelled, and she beat the air with her arms. Ah, I sensed you were indeed a musician! she exclaimed. And music isn't just a subject of conversation. It performs a number of important roles in the narrative. For example, we have no way of knowing what the narrator of this long book actually looks like, except once, when someone on the street mistakes him for Charles-Marie Vidor, the well-known organist at the Church of Saint-Sulpice. And in fact, the young Vidor did look something like Marcel Proust himself. More importantly, a violin sonata by the fictitious composer Van Toy plays a central role in the plot of the novel. 
Charles Swan, a major character throughout the work, first hears this violin sonata performed at a salon. He comes to associate a certain little phrase from the piece with Odette de Crécy, with whom he has fallen passionately in love. Like a song from a summer romance, the sonata becomes what the narrator calls the national anthem of their love. Swan's relationship with Odette, however, is not without its challenges, and there are times when the little phrase from the sonata is the only thing that can sustain Swan's love. Where Odette's affection might seem ever so little abrupt and disappointing, the little phrase would come to supplement it, to amalgamate with it its own mysterious essence. Watching Swan's face while he listened to the phrase, one would have said that he was inhaling an anaesthetic which allowed him to breathe more deeply. And the pleasure which the music gave him was in fact closely akin at such moments to the pleasure which he would have derived from experimenting with perfumes, deep repose, mysterious refreshment. While the Van Toy Sonata is a fictional piece of music written by a fictitious composer, the phrase was probably inspired by Émile Sanson's first violin sonata. Here's an excerpt that Swan himself would have loved.
In the years leading up to the Great War, Eric Satie too finally emerged from poverty and obscurity, finding himself transformed from crackpot to innovator. He suddenly attracted a flurry of attention in the press, both in France and abroad, largely facilitated by Debussy's great rival Maurice Ravel. In 1911, Ravel dedicated an entire concert to Satie's music, where Ravel himself performed a number of Satie's early piano works. But despite getting their first glimpses of good fortune, neither Marcel Proust nor Eric Satie could escape the tide of world events. By the end of 1914, Proust's beloved Paris had changed utterly. Picasso, Diaghilev, the Ballet Russe and Stravinsky were turning musical somersaults inside the house while the German shells rang just outside the door. From his perch in Boulevard Haussmann, Marcel Proust was frustrated, saddened, and obsessed with the war. He of course feared for the city and mourned the death of so many young men. But as the battles raged, he was fascinated by the spectacle of the air raids. He wrote to a friend, I went out onto the balcony and stayed there for over an hour watching this wonderful apocalypse in which the aeroplanes climbing and diving seem to complement and eclipse the constellations. Satie, too, was capable of experiencing somewhat mad exhilaration at the spectacle. One night, during particularly heavy shelling, Satie was found lying on the ground at the Plastic Concorde, strangely convinced that the obelisk would keep him safe from danger. Indeed, the war was still raging when, in 1917, these two men came as close as they would ever come to an actual encounter, and the occasion was Satie's most controversial work, the Ballet Parade.
This short ballet was an all-star production. Jean Cocteau wrote the story, Picasso designed the sets, and it was danced by the Ballet Russe. To our ears, the work doesn't appear to justify the tirade of controversy that it unleashed. Musically, this is background stuff, like film music, designed merely to set the mood for a plucky little American girl to ride a bicycle, board a ship, crank up a Model T, and dance ragtime. But the score's very jazziness, nostalgia, and light touch feel, along with the additions to the orchestra of typewriters, whistles, and the firing of a gun, outraged some of its war-torn audience by its sheer inappropriateness. And as we listen to this excerpt, performed in a city where the bombs were still falling outside, can you really blame people for complaining? Despite Proust's failing health, he managed to attend an early performance of this very avant-garde ballet. He didn't necessarily come just for Satie's music. Proust knew Jean Cocteau quite well, and he found Pablo Picasso intriguingly handsome. But the work clearly stretched Proust's sensibilities. It's not that he had nothing to say. Proust always had something to say. But it seems the work reminded him of what he'd been missing since his withdrawal from life. The advance of musical tastes, the invasion of American popular culture, perhaps even the music of Eric Satie. After the performance, he wrote to Jean Cocteau. Parade was poignant and continues to generate in me untold regrets. What concentration there is in all this, what food for ages of famine, and what regret, when I still had legs, not to have known the sawdust of circuses and everything else, which from that evening fills me with heart-rending pity. To go back to where we started, Proust's great novel names or discusses or analyzes many, many contemporary composers and their work. Everyone, that is, except Eric Satie. However, it very nearly happened. It occurs during a very interesting discussion in the middle of volume four. The narrator is musing on Proust's favorite French composer, Claude Debussy. Thinking about how music evolves through time, the narrator comments that... Theories and schools, like microbes and globules, devour one another, and by their struggles, ensure life's continuance. This sounds like a benign enough idea. Just like the evolution which occurs in nature, music grows and changes, leaving the styles and composers of the past behind. But in this context, then, we get a further statement, which, when I encountered it first, 
absolutely leapt off the page. The narrator actually says, The day was coming when people would declare that Debussy used nothing more than the art of Massenet applying a few new ideas from Eric Satie. So finally, after reading four volumes of Marcel Proust's novel, we meet our friend Eric Satie, right? Not quite. Proust actually removed that last passage from the draft before the novel went to print. And so Eric Satie just missed being immortalized in what some consider to be the greatest novel that will ever be written. So now we ask why. Given that Proust knew of Satie and his music, attended a performance of Parade, and clearly recognized that Satie had achieved international respectability, why did Marcel Proust rub Eric Satie out of his manuscript? Was it merely down to Satie's difficult personality? As David Mooney notes, I think that probably it was due to Satie's own personality. I mean, he was a very difficult guy. He fell out with so many people. And I would imagine that they would have been very different types of men. I suspect that these are two men who would not have hit it off well. Or was it a straightforward case of old-fashioned French snobbery? Left bank versus right bank sensibilities? Actually, I don't think it was that simple. I think Marcel Proust was deeply suspicious of Satie's entire artistic program. Let's remember, Proust was a genius of preservation. He dedicated 17 years to exploring his own longing for the past and illuminating how everything that has gone before continuously shows forth in and indeed forms our experience of the present. Here's a particularly beautiful evocation of Proust's philosophy, which occurs towards the end of the novel, when the narrator meets the granddaughter of Charles Swann and Odette de Crécy. I saw Gilbert coming towards me. I was astonished to see beside her a young girl of about 16, whose tall figure was a visible measure of the distance I had not wanted to see. Time colorless and intangible, had materialized in her so that I could, so to speak, see it and touch it. It had shaped her into a masterwork, while at the same time on me, alas, it had merely done its work. I was struck by the way that her nose, constructed on the template of her mother's and grandmother's, stopped precisely at that perfect horizontal line beneath it. I marveled that nature should have returned at the appointed time to the granddaughter, as to the mother and to the grandmother, like a great and original sculptor, to perform this powerful and decisive stroke of the chisel. I thought she was very beautiful, still full of hopes, laughing, formed out of the very years that I had lost. She looked like my youth. For Marcel Proust, who dedicated his life to exposing the power and profundity of the past, Eric Satie's unceasing irony, iconoclasm, and avant-gardism threatened to destroy everything that Proust so valued. In Proust's view, Satie was leading music towards mind-numbing simplicity 
repetition, and ultimately nothing more than silence. Proust could not possibly respect Eric Satie's concept of furniture music, that is, music written in such a manner that it would not be listened to. Let's conclude this program with Satie's strangest and perhaps most influential piece of all, which he titled Vexations. He wrote it just after losing the only serious love of his lonely life, and although he never published it, Vexations achieved cult status after Satie's death. It's only about three lines long, with no key signature and no bar lines. Almost every note is qualified with a sharp or a flat or two sharps or two flats, which makes it well-nigh impossible to play or at least to sight-read. Okay, here's the Vexations. I'll see what it's like. It's, it certainly looks typically mad for Satie. Most importantly, Eric Satie directs us to repeat this short study 840 times, and thus it actually requires over 24 hours to perform. I reckon he would have wanted somebody to suffer, and he would have wanted them to play it 840 times, and I think he would have wanted an audience just for effect. I just have that feeling, the, the live performance, the role of the audience, and the sort of absurdity of this is what really gets him going, so I suspect that he probably wouldn't have wanted it to be recorded at all. For subsequent composers like John Cage, this fascinating, challenging work heralded the onset of minimalism and perhaps represented the real starting point for 20th century music. However, I think that, for the great preserver Marcel Proust, a performance of Vexations would have represented just too much lost time. <laughs> 